Father, I thank you so much for the grace of rain in this part of the country. Father, we've needed it. And for reasons that you know, you've held back. And now, Father, you've delivered. And we know, Father, that you have purpose in all of these things. You bring rain when it suits your purpose and you hold it back when it suits your purpose. But we thank you in both cases and we praise your name because we know your will is always perfect and good. And we take time now, Father, to thank you for the blessing that it is that we can have water refreshing the ground. Thank you, Father, for the chance to join here today in this place, to have a building, Father, that's dry and comfortable to sit in. For friends who would come and gather with us, who would encourage us along the way in our walk with Christ and remind us that the body of Christ is a life, not an affiliation. It is who we are, not what we do. And we are who we are by the work of the Spirit in us. And we come together, Father, so that you may use each of us, one for another, to accomplish a work. And you do it all, Father, by your Spirit and through your Word. And our little church honors you the best we can by yielding to the Spirit as we live and listening to your Word as we gather. Let your Word this morning, Father, be that lamp to our feet, guiding a path into righteousness that we would follow willingly out of a love for the one who died on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was last week that we saw the moment we had been waiting for for some time, the moment when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He brought the family through a time of testing. That led them to a moment of repentance in which they sought mercy from Joseph. They mourned their prior mistakes and their sins against their father. And then, Having seen all of that transformation, Joseph then reveals himself as their long-lost brother. And as we looked at that last week, you remember we studied that beautiful picture of Christ that's embedded or reflected in all of those details. The fact that it was the Lord in his word who says that there will be a time of tribulation or testing for a new generation of Israel in the future, in the last days, as the Bible calls them. And that through that trial, Israel will be brought to a period or to a point of repentance, we're told. And that as they reach that point, they will call upon the name of the Lord in their distress. And in the response to that call, the Lord will reveal himself to Israel in those last days. A beautiful picture that's accomplished through this story. Now, back to the story of Joseph. We know he's waited a year or more to make this revelation known to them. The whole time it's been a period of famine and As he finally reaches this moment and he shares that secret with his brothers, we saw how stunned, really how unexpected it was for them to hear the news of who Joseph really was. And that's that's really the way secrets work. Quite often, secrets have this effect on other people. They catch us off guard. We're unprepared when they're revealed to us. There's a story of a deacon who was sick and was in the hospital and his friend, the pastor of the church, goes to visit him and the pastor As he goes to the hospital and spends time with this deacon, he notices the deacons all wired up. The equipment they have now to keep you alive is is all working to help him. But he's so constrained and restricted by it all, he can't speak even, and he can barely open his eyes. So the preacher, not knowing what else to do, kneels down at the bedside to pray over the deacon. And as he begins to pray, almost immediately he notices the deacon gets a burst of energy and he reaches with his hand for a pad of paper and a pen that's sitting nearby. And the preacher hands the deacon the pad and the pen and the deacon begins to write since he couldn't speak. And just as he's finishing writing the last words on the pad, 
his eyes close and his head slumps over and he breathes his last breath and the deacon dies right there on the bed next to the pastor. Well, the pastor was so moved to have been with his dear friend at the very end and to have received his last words written on that pad that he decides there and then to take the note, fold it up and to put it into his coat, not even to read it, waiting for the right moment to reveal it at the funeral of this deacon. And so at the funeral, the pastor gets into the pulpit and begins the eulogy for the deacon. And at the climax of his sermon, he announces to those in attendance, I was with him when he died. And as a matter of fact, I have here with me his very last dying words. And the preacher pulls out and opens the note and begins reading. And he says, please get up. You're kneeling on my oxygen hose. (laughs) Secrets are dangerous when they're first revealed. So now that Joseph has revealed his secret to his brothers, what's going to happen next? Is Joseph going to take retribution? That would seem to be the logical expectation for the brothers. But think past that. What's going to happen when Jacob finds out that Joseph is still alive? What's going to happen when he finds out that the whole story the brothers concocted was false? You see, there's more ramifications here than merely what happens with Joseph. We get to see him showing strength in even another way. And then lastly, we're also going to discover why it's necessary for Joseph to have this position of power in the first place. The promise that the Lord made to Abraham years and years earlier is still working its way to fulfillment because the family is going to live now in Egypt for hundreds of years. And Joseph's role of authority is essential in making that happen. So it was not merely the fact that Joseph would be there in order to test them and to create an opportunity for reconciliation. It goes beyond that. He's also there now to bring them into Egypt. And that's where we go now in verse seven. We're going to go back a couple of verses from last week and revisit Joseph's words of wisdom to his brother as he reveals himself. And then we'll move forward from there. Verse seven. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you would all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now, you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Joseph explains to his brothers what we heard last week, which is you may have done what you did, but God was the one who planned for me to be here. And it was God working to make that happen. And my placement here in Egypt is part of a strategic plan that God is in the middle of working, a plan that included as a part of it that Joseph would have to spend a period of time in misery 
And before the rest of Israel could enjoy the benefits of Egypt, one had to go before them in misery, just as Jesus had to go into the grave before we could enjoy the privileges and the benefits of his glory. But now Joseph is a ruling man. He's second only to Pharaoh. And in this position, he has still more work to do in keeping with God's purposes. Joseph's journey into Egypt, we're told, is intended to do two things, preserve a remnant and lead to a great deliverance. Now, at first glance, you might assume that he's referring to merely the famine. He had to go there in order to prepare a place for Israel to hide out from the famine. He had to go there and create an opportunity to deliver Israel from the famine. But that's not what he's talking about. It's a prophetic statement. It's speaking of things that are going to happen long after Joseph's life. The remnant here refers to the people of Israel who will be preserved by God through many years of captivity in slavery in Egypt. And then the great deliverance refers to the deliverance that Moses conducts and is described in the book of Exodus. Remember, the Lord has already promised these things to Abraham. This is not news, not in the big scheme of things. He was told already, Abraham was told, that his people would be wanderers in a land that was not theirs, and they would be enslaved, and, Abraham was told, they would be brought back out after four generations. So Joseph is taking what he knows has been promised and in connecting the dots, he has come to see that his own time in Egypt is a part of how God is bringing this whole plan into fruition. And now he's telling his brothers that his journey into Egypt is part of what their forefathers had said must happen. I love Joseph's faith here, his faith. His faith is so sure that he is doing something consistent with the promises of God, that he is acting based on that faith. He is acting to say his father and his family needs to join him now in Egypt as a result of this plan. Hebrews tells us that that is exactly what is behind Joseph's order. Hebrews 11.22 says this, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He knew when he died that this land was not their permanent home, that an exodus was promised and would happen, and he didn't want to miss it. Men and women of faith live this way. This is very characteristic of the way men and women of faith live. According to the Bible, we hear and then we accept the promises of God, just as Joseph heard and understood the promises given to Abraham. But we don't stop there. Secondly, we tell others what the Lord has told us, We share what we know about the future or about God's purposes, just as Joseph told his brothers about what was coming, this great deliverance, for example. And then we don't stop there. Then we live our lives according to that understanding. We live in keeping with what we believe, just as Joseph will tell his family, don't leave my bones buried in Egypt. Joseph's faith led to understanding and then to works. To command to his brothers, your father, my father, must come down and be with us here in Egypt. He instructs the brothers, go tell Jacob that you've learned all these things, you've seen all these things, you understand all these things. Now tell him, I want him to come join us here in Egypt. And he says, you're going to live in Goshen. You're going to have your family with you. You're going to have herds with you. Now, Goshen is the fertile valley that's fed by the Nile. It's a great place if you're going to shepherd or farm. It's adjacent directly to the Egyptian capital. And the capital of the time in Joseph's day was not the capital you see today of Cairo. It's the capital of Memphis. Memphis was the capital. 
So for Joseph and his family, this region near Memphis is going to become their new home, a land of grace that God is providing. You could even call it Graceland because it's near Memphis. So Joseph tells them to mention all the wonderful things they've seen, to tell them that Joseph is ruling, to tell them you need to come in a hurry. Tell them the famine is not over. Tell Jacob the famine still has five more years. Tell them that if they stay in Canaan, this famine has the power to reduce them to poverty, Joseph says. Clearly, Joseph's been thinking about this for some time, don't you think? He knows exactly where he wants to put them. He's already got the whole plan in place. That makes sense because he's had almost two years now of working with his brothers in this way to anticipate this moment. He knew it was coming and he's ready for it. And this is no easy sell. I don't want you to think that because he tells his father, hey, I'm here, that his father is just going to immediately say, well, of course, then let's all just move down to Egypt. Quite the other way around. You know, the story of Jacob. Jacob left the land once before expecting to come back quickly, didn't he? didn't work out that way. He worked very hard to get back into the land of Canaan. Now that he's returned to that land, it's very unlikely that he'll want to leave again. And so Joseph is working very hard with his brothers to plant the idea in Jacob's head that you need to find reason to come down here. This is what God wants. The most important thing Joseph has working for him in this argument is the famine. You notice that the Lord designed the famine to last seven years. But we've already gone through just two of them, and the family's reconciliation has taken place. You might think, well, what's with the other five years? If he could get it done in two, why did he design it to be seven? Well, now you're finding out why. So that there would be reason enough for Jacob and his family to know they needed to go to Egypt, for if they didn't, they would be impoverished. They would be starved to death staying in Canaan. The point of the famine is twofold. Bringing the family back together, as it is now done, but also to bring Israel into Egypt, which is what God promised to Abraham. Finally, in that scene we just read, everyone exchanges embraces and kisses and words, and then the news begins to spread of what's happened in Egypt. Verse 16. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. The Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you're ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So Pharaoh hears about Joseph's family arriving. And it pleases him. Now, there's at least two easy reasons we can come up with for why he would have been happy to hear that Joseph's family has arrived. First, the Pharaoh and all of Egypt have been incredibly blessed by the work and the leadership of Joseph over the last few years. And there is no way that Pharaoh wants Joseph becoming a free agent. The last thing he wants to see is that Joseph finds some other reason to go somewhere else and leave Egypt 
without that leadership. So Pharaoh is looking for any way to keep Joseph happy and to keep him settled in the land of Egypt. There's no better way than to have your family come join you. And so that's the first reason he would be pleased. Secondly, remember the story of who these men are, who the pharaohs of this age were. They were the Hicksaws. They were the Semites who came in from outside the land and conquered the native Egyptians. Well, we're still under Hicksaw rule here at this point in the story. And so as we studied before, any time Pharaoh could get Semites to emigrate from Canaan and into Egypt and join him, it was to his advantage because it helped him consolidate his power over the people. So more the merrier. Hey, your family wants to join you? Absolutely. Bring them on down. In fact, I'm going to send wagons for them. I won't hear anything else of it. They're coming. And so Joseph's family fits into his political aims as well. This kind of invitation would never have happened if the Hicksaw people were not there. If this could have taken place at a point in Egyptian history where the Egyptians were ruling themselves, I can assure you no such invitation would have ever been extended. The Hamites hated the Semites for reasons that are clear from the fact that they were enemies. So God's timing and his sovereignty over these events, in fact, over world events, is clearly evident here. God promised Abraham, you're going to be welcomed into Egypt. How was he going to make that happen if Egyptians hated Semites? Well, then, hundreds of years later, the Lord brings a strange Semite people into the land of Egypt to conquer Egypt. And he did that so that there would be this opportunity to follow with Joseph's family. But he doesn't stop there. Then he rolls his sleeves up and he creates the conditions for a famine. Because although he has the stage set in Egypt for the arrival of Joseph's family, there's still the problem of Joseph's family wanting to go to Egypt. And so he makes a famine. But even that doesn't give them the idea that they should go there or even be welcomed there unless he takes someone in the family, puts them there in advance, brings them to the top of the chain. Then you have everything in place. Now it all happens. If you deconstruct everything I just said, You'll work through the genealogies of families and the lives of individuals and armies and politics and economy and all that had to be orchestrated just so over centuries of time, over thousands of miles, over millions of lives, so that every note in that orchestra is played exactly the way it needed to be, so that on this day, 12 brothers are invited by one pharaoh to bring the rest of their family to live in Goshen, in keeping with a promise God made hundreds of years earlier. If you deconstruct all of that, you cannot get away from one inescapable fact. Everything is under God's control. Because if I try to draw a line somewhere in those events and draw a line that says, this is God and this is not God, there is no line. Because everything was dependent on something else. The life of a person depends on who their parents were and when they lived and where they had their baby. And that depended on their parents. And how can you ever draw a line that says, well, it was random up until this point. And then God kicked in and made the rest of it happen. Logic dictates it can't work that way. In fact, when you ask the question, how much authority does God have in the world or in my life? You're actually asking the wrong question. The better question is, how much of the Lord's power do I acknowledge in my life? Do I recognize being in my life? He is in control of your life and in my life with or without your recognition of it. But if you come to know him first and then take time to learn his word 
concerning these things, secondly. And then thirdly, discipline yourself to obey his voice when you hear it. And then lastly, pay attention to the work of God in your life. Then you will finally have the evidence you need that God is at work around you and in control. Now, if you don't do those things, you'll still see God at work in hindsight. Quite often, everyone will have a story of some kind where they can say, looking back, I can see how God did this and then did this and then did this, and it all just worked out. But I'll tell you, in the middle of it, I was so worried, or I couldn't have seen how this was going to work out. But I can see it now. Well, that's good. Acknowledging God in the past is a good thing. But it's so much easier to see the Lord at work in the moment and join in with him as a part of that work when you live with your eyes open. As Joseph did, knowing God, knowing his word, disciplining yourself to listen to him and to understand his purposes so that you can see evidence of it as it happens. You know, it's the difference between noticing someone on the side of the road with a flat tire versus seeing that tire being changed on the side of the road and turning to your wife or your husband and saying, honey, this may be the opportunity God's giving us today. Let's stop and help. And while I'm changing the tire, I want you to talk to her about where she goes to church or about something else in her life. It's not about being contrived. It's about being attentive. It's about knowing because God is in control, I'm not here by coincidence. That car didn't stop by coincidence. This moment isn't coincidence. It's an opportunity. What's God going to do? We don't know. But we're open as opposed to looking in hindsight. So Pharaoh tells Joseph that his family is going to come to Egypt and have the best. And that tells us something about Pharaoh's view of Joseph. It's obvious how pleased Pharaoh is with Joseph and how pleased he is, therefore, with the family of Joseph coming. He sends wagons. He sends the best on these donkeys and everything that goes with it. In fact, notice Pharaoh says, don't even bother trying to bring your own household with you. What he's saying is literally this. Don't pack up your tents. Don't pick up all your goods. Don't go to the extra effort to bind it all on top of donkeys and prepare for a long train ride. Jump in the wagons and go. What do you need? We're sending you clothes. We got food. We got everything here waiting for you. You're going to have land. You're going to have whatever we need. What is it you have that's better? Leave it. Joseph goes a step further. You notice with Benjamin, he lavishes gifts of money and clothing on Benjamin. I can think of two reasons. Well, if you count maybe the fact that Benjamin was a clothes horse, maybe there's three reasons, but I don't think that's it. There's two reasons at least why he would do this for his brother. First, I think it's continuing favor out of love for his true full brother. This is the only full brother Joseph has, so he has an affinity for Benjamin that's natural. But secondly, I wonder if this is a part of how Joseph is proving to Jacob, to his father, that the story they've heard is true. I mean, remember, favoring Benjamin in this way is sure to catch Jacob's eye, and it would seem to give evidence to support the brother's testimony that, yeah, this is really Joseph back in Egypt. I mean, after all, look, he gave Benjamin extra. Why else would you do that? Obviously, we deserve it more than he does. Pharaoh's instructions, though, create another picture of Christ. One of the last ones, really, in the story of Joseph. This is a remarkable picture of Christ and of the end times events. I want you to remember that Joseph, as we know, is a picture of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can also conclude that Pharaoh, who is one step above Joseph, serves as a picture of sorts for the first person of the Godhead, of the Father, to a degree. And if that's so, then therefore Pharaoh being pleased with Joseph is a picture of the Father in heaven being pleased with the work of Christ as it was assigned to him. And because the Father is pleased with his Son, we are told in Scripture 
that he will gladly welcome Christ and Christ's own people into the kingdom. Isaiah tells us this. Listen to Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 8. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. And thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. If you could see the text as I'm reading it out of Isaiah, the translators have done the proper thing in capitalizing the proper names and the pronouns throughout that passage. When he says to the despised one or to the one who is my servant or you shall do this and you shall do that, they're all capitalized because the interpreters have correctly understood this is a passage of the father speaking of the son of Jesus. And notice what he says. He is formed by the father in the womb for the purpose of bringing Jacob, that is Israel, back to himself. That's one of the purposes the Messiah was given, one of the tasks. And he says this salvation would reach beyond Israel to the ends of the earth, to you and I, which is why we sit here today. But this redeemer, this one who's formed by God to have this mission of mercy, it also goes on to say he will be abhorred by the nations. He'll be despised by Israel. Nevertheless, the father promises they will bow down to you because I have chosen you for this purpose. And then finally, the father, it says, will reward his son who pleased him through this mission by giving him a covenant people who he will restore to the land and assign an inheritance with him. All of those pictures, all of those statements I just gave you out of Isaiah concerning the way Christ served the father in this mission, all of that is pictured here. In the way Pharaoh elevated a despised and rejected Joseph to a point where others were bowing down to him. And furthermore, Joseph, in serving Pharaoh, pleased Pharaoh. And that leads, we're now told, to Pharaoh restoring Israel, look, to a land with a wonderful inheritance. Not because Israel deserved it, but because Joseph pleased him. Furthermore, look at the way the family enters. And this is where the picture really, I think, becomes so remarkable. They are called first to arrive with what? New clothes. Clothes provided by Pharaoh. And in a future day when Israel is saved, they will receive new clothes as well. Only these are robes of righteousness, Scripture calls them. And a new incorruptible body that will be the new tent for the spirit of each man. And... In that future day, the clothes, the spiritual clothing that God appoints, these robes of righteousness are given to Israel, to all believers by the Lord, because salvation is a gift given to us by the Lord. And he gives us these robes, not because we earn them, not because we please them, not because we showed in our own merit the 
justification to deserve such an award, but rather only because of the work of Christ. Because he pleases the Father, he receives an inheritance, which includes an inheritance of people given to him by the Father. Just as Joseph's family is given to Joseph by Pharaoh, an inheritance in the land, and symbolically these robes, these clothes. Notice what else they're told when they are to come. They are told to leave everything else behind and come expecting something better. Every believer who will enter the kingdom by faith takes nothing from this world, Paul reminds us. He says it in 1 Timothy 6, 7 and 8. He says, for we have brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And we enter... Into this kingdom, this new place in which we will dwell with Christ, we enter with nothing more to show than our track record of service in the years we lived here. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, in speaking of what it will be like for men who come to that moment of judgment following their death, those of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.12, Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, Silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Well, each man's work will become evident for that day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, well, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Now, he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So Paul teaches us that upon our entry into Christ's presence, we stand, all believers now, this is talking about you and I, not about the unbeliever, we stand for a moment of judgment. And when we come to that moment, we come totally alone. We don't take letters of recommendation from our pastor. We don't have our friends and our family standing around to testify to what a great person we were. We don't offer our own words. We don't come with any excuses. There's no evidence in Scripture that we even open our mouth In fact, our words, were we to offer any, would count for nothing. Because only our actions will be evaluated. Like Jacob's family headed to Egypt, we leave everything behind. The cart is sent for us. We jump in and we're immediately delivered into Christ's presence, whether because we've died or because the rapture has brought us there without passing through death. And as we stand before Christ, we stand there resting in his righteousness having been made righteous by his blood, but we stand or fall against that judgment according to the work we accomplished in our time here. So, friends, our goal in this life is to be ready for that moment. The issue of our salvation, that's settled on the cross. We don't need to relive that. The issue is, do we have eyes for eternity? Are we standing here now working for that moment of judgment? In response to the Pharaoh's order, Joseph sends 10 male donkeys, 10 female donkeys loaded with all these provision. That's a part of how he's trying to incentivize his father. Yes, but it's also a testimony because the number 10 in Scripture is the number of testimony. Wherever you see it, it's meant to represent something. Not only is it literal in this case, but it's a symbol as well. It says, I am testifying to you about what I have said concerning the value you will have, the prosperity you will have in Egypt. We'll finish the chapter with Joseph giving his brothers his final instructions and with them come yet one final picture of Christ. Verse 24. So he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. 
Well, then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So in verse 24, Joseph's first order of business as he sends them out is a statement that every parent understands implicitly. You've got 12 sons and you're sending them on a road trip. What's the first thing you do? You tell them, if any of you fight, I swear I'm going to pull this car off the road and work. No, no, he doesn't say that. But he's, he's thinking that he says, don't quarrel. But actually, as funny as that is, actually, that's not what he said. Because in Hebrew, the word for quarrel is ragaz, and ragaz does not normally get translated in this way. It can mean quarrel, but it's almost always translated fear or trembling. Don't be afraid is really the, the most logical, most sensible translation. It's the most common one. And if you think about it in context, it would be very odd, really, for Joseph to tell his fully grown brothers on a trip back to see dad, don't argue. I mean, if they haven't gotten along at this point in their life, he's not going to have much more influence on them. And it doesn't make any sense in the context. Why would he care? On the other hand, it makes perfect sense that he would tell them, don't be afraid. Because think about it. They're headed home without Joseph to tell their father what they did to him. To reveal to Jacob for the first time their error. The whole past of taking their father through the misery of thinking he was dead, of just the fact that they sold him into slavery is going to come up, I guarantee, somewhere in the conversation. They must have expected that when they get all the questions and they give all of the answers and they have to confront their sin in front of their father, do you understand, under patriarchal culture, they could be killed. There would have been no concern in the society whatsoever if a father had chosen in that moment to execute his son's for their crime, it would have been justified. It would have been expected. So in light of that possibility, what is the temptation these brothers might have as they set out to return to Canaan? Well, think about it. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of provisions. They've got everything they could probably need. Maybe they're betting they could get through the famine without any more help. They go back with a good story. They've lied before. Dad never knows anything about Joseph. And we're scot-free. It all makes sense for Joseph to turn to them in that moment and say, now, look, don't be afraid. Don't do the wrong thing. Don't worry. Don't fail to trust that God's at work in this. Don't turn your back on me. Don't make the wrong choice now. And with that, they leave Egypt and they come into Canaan and they confront Jacob and they tell Jacob the truth. They tell him Joseph's alive. He's ruler of Egypt. And then. Jacob's response is he's stunned. And the word in Hebrew literally is the word for numb. He's numbed by the news. But more importantly, it says he did not believe the report. He didn't believe him. Then it says he heard the words of Joseph. So they told him all of Joseph's words. He then saw all that was sent of Joseph providing and then it says the spirit of Jacob was revived and he believed. And then look at the very next verse. Who is it that says, I will go? Is it Jacob? No, it's not. It's Israel. Do you remember the word change in its meaning? Jacob is the man living in the flesh. 
Israel is the man walking in the spirit. And for the first time in a while, we've seen the name Israel appear in the text. And what caused him to move in this direction? It says he believed after he heard the words of Joseph, he saw the work of Joseph and his spirit was revived. Do you see a picture of Christ working not only in the hearts of Israel, but in the hearts of every believer throughout history? When the word of God reaches someone, and it will in one day for Israel, and it did for us. And when we see the mercy and the goodness of the Lord as it's reflected in his work with what we know of him and what we are told of him, and as Israel sees him defending them in the face of the attack of the Antichrist, as we studied last week, when all that comes to bear, but only after the spirit is revived, finally the pieces fall into place. And that's when you will see Israel turn to Christ and say, I will see him before I die. The most impressive part about this picture is that last statement. If this is a picture of Israel in the last days, this statement is exactly perfectly right. Israel, the last Israel, the generation that will receive Christ at his second coming, they will see him before they die. For he returns to save them. What a beautiful picture. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the pictures of Christ in this story. They are such a reminder of your wisdom and your sovereignty and power. They teach us about your grace and about your mercy, that you have not forsaken Israel and that we can be just as assured you would never forsake us. But I also ask, Father, that we would take the courage from what we see in Joseph's example to know that we can follow the truth. We can call others to do the same. We can live a life that is meant to be a witness and you will raise us up in ways that we cannot expect. We can be like Joseph, Father, in the way we stand firm for the truth and we can suffer through trial as he did. And yet, Father, we know that there's a provision and an inheritance reserved for us that can never be taken away. And whatever you may do for us in this life pales in comparison to what you offer in the next. In that age to come in which we will live and work alongside others in this world, serving you as you reign. Let us have eyes for that moment and live now with an expectation for what it will bring. Let us not be attached to the things we have now so that we would not let them draw us away from that service. Remind us, Father, that when the wagon comes to pick us up, we jump in with nothing but ourselves and our testimony of work. Let us be worthy for that moment of judgment. I pray, Father, that this church, as always, would continue, that the work here would never end until you return for us, and that you would give us the blessing of continuing study in your word and an opportunity to use what we learn and let others come and share it with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.